Amen. You all can take a seat. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we, we have been hit by the COVID, um, and we have several staff members that are out today. I know several worship team members. I know several folks in our congregation. Um, thanks for uh, keeping us all safe, too, as we gather here. And also, you guys online, I'm so thankful. I know we have some folks, too, that are, are joining us from really all around the area, all around the country. We have friends, neighbors, all sorts of stuff. And I just want to put a little plug in for the like social media thing. I was talking to a couple people this week about... Um, how they happened to share like that they were worshiping here, whether Tag did or, or shared like the live stream. And all of a sudden they had like friends from like out of state start liking some of the things we were posting. Like we posted a funny picture of the groundhog this week and said, you know, like add your own emoji to the equation, what your reaction was. And we had people that were posting from other states and places. And so you don't quite know how that might impact people. I mean, I've had people I've been very surprised that have joined us for worship just because I shared something. So it's a very simple way to engage folks, and you might be surprised who would, might join us and tune in. Maybe you're watching online because somebody posted something or invited you. So, um, well, we're in this series, Start Dreaming Again, and those of us, those of you who were with us last week, um, and if you didn't, you can also catch that on Facebook, YouTube, um, whatnot. But uh, last week, we started the message with what? Everybody's favorite subject in school, math. Yes, well, we're not starting in math today, though I did get a few compliments. I got a couple of pats on the back for starting with a little math. We're not doing math today. But today, we're going to start off with a little a little like Q&A, like a little kind of like trivia um, where we're going to post a picture. I'm going to put a picture up and I'm going to ask you the question, guess where this is found? So first one, where is this? Mount Everest, yes. And do you know what countries Mount Everest is bordered to or is found in or you can access? Anybody? This is extra credit. This is brownie points. I'll give you like chocolate or something next week. Nepal and Tibet. Nepal and Tibet, you can actually access Mount Everest and um, very cool. So what about the next one? Where is this found? Okay, Jerusalem. And does anybody know specifically what this is? Yeah, the Wailing Wall. Yep, the Western Wall. You can go and visit there. How about, how about this famous dude? 17 feet tall, by the way. Where is he found? Oh, yeah, he's David, but where, what, what country? Italy, yes, in Italy, yes, you can go visit David as well as lots of his other friends and sculptures. And how about this guy? Oh, some of you are like, I hate him, right? I hate him. Paxaptani, Pennsylvania, known, did you know this, around the world. Like, this is like international news here about this fuzzy groundhog. And unfortunately, his Jersey buddy passed away the day before Groundhog Day. So, Paxaptani, it is. Pennsylvania. And how about this one? London, yeah, yeah, London. If you ever visited England, London, you've especially seen um, the double-decker bus, which it's very much known for. So, um, and, and so, you know what's really interesting? I was doing some research on this. The history of the double-decker bus, did you know it dates all the way back to 1847? There you go. Pulled by horses, a little bumpier than your, you know, your shocks are not about the same. It started out as a horse-drawn vehicle, 
And um, it was interesting that when it was invented, it started out to, to have a higher seating capacity, of course, than regular means of transportation. And when the, the uh, bus version, when the um, automotive version was invented, um, they found also it was easier to turn around London's corners and whatnot. It became a national symbol that many of us, we see the picture, we associate immediately, think of London, England. Um, and get this, that there's two kinds of them. There's one that has an open top, and that's mainly reserved for tourists during the nice months. But then there's also one that's a closed top that is usually used for transport and kind of getting people from one place to another, from home to work and whatnot. Um, but you know what's interesting? If you've ever ridden a double-decker bus, I have not. I visited London once when I was in high school. But um, those that I know who have, and I know in different cities they, they exist as well, um, you know what's interesting? You might have two people in the same vehicle, but have two totally different experiences of the ride. They may be even sitting in the same plane, one up here and one down here. They may be going the same path, but somebody on the upper level has a different perspective and a different view and a different experience of all that is going on than someone in it who is in the lower level. They will see the same sights, but they will see them very, very, very differently as they drive around. But I want you to hold on to that idea today, because that's where we're headed today, because those of us who have placed our faith in Christ our story of life is kind of like a double-decker bus. Our experience of life is kind of like being on a double-decker bus, that we're having two things going on at the same time, even if we don't see it all. And, and so there's kind of like an upper story going on and a lower story that's going on. And in this, this sermon series, Start Dreaming Again, we've been tracking this idea, really, with the story of Joseph in the Old Testament scriptures, the story of Joseph. And in Joseph's life, we see this really well. We see this really well because there's two types of story. There's the lower story. So for Joseph, he's born into this, this family that's very well known, that's very popular, and he has 11 brothers, believe it or not, and he's favored by his dad, but his brothers are terrible and jealous of him, but he's kind of arrogant at the same time, and he gets thrown into a well and then sold into slavery by, him, by them. Kind of like a terrible, terrible story, right? And then again, he finally rises up even out of that, and then he's punished for avoiding major sin, and he's put in prison, and that's all kind of like the lower story. You can kind of narrate it. It's one by one by one by one. But there's also an upper story going on in Joseph's life. And the upper story is the yeah, but God story. The yeah, but God. Yeah, but God. That, that yeah, you're born into this family of 11 brothers, but God gives him a dream. The, the yeah, he's punished and he's sold into slavery, but yeah, God is at work bringing things to fruition in the story. It's the, the yeah, but God, and, and of course, there are details in the lower story that are definitely worthy of being upset about and that we're not right. But Joseph's trust in God all the while is what shaped his life because he chose to live his life in the upper story, on the upper level. A totally different experience of life. 
And I think when it comes to us, we all have upper stories and lower stories. We live out this double-decker life. And the reason that I want to share this is because ultimately that idea is what shapes Joseph's life. It shapes his relationships. It shapes how he lives and acts in life. And the question that we need to ask ourselves, which is what I think Joseph probably asked himself many a time, was what story am I choosing to live out of? Which story? Am I choosing to live out of the things that every day, the circumstances that come up, what goes on, and kind of seeing things at the lower level? Or am I viewing things maybe from an upper level? The yeah, but God story. Well, last week we talked about the math part, which was the inflection point, the inflection point in Joseph's life. The turning point when all that bad stuff all of a sudden changed almost in an instant, really overnight in the course of one day. He went from being in prison in the morning to now being elevated to one of Pharaoh's chief of staff. And so the story goes that he was pulled out of prison because Pharaoh all of a sudden has dreams. And, and Joseph is known for his interpretation of dreams because he helped a couple guys when he was in prison interpret their dreams. And so because nobody else can figure out what Pharaoh's dreaming, remember about the cows, the moo, and the, the what was it, the... Um, sheets of grain and what all that meant. And so Joseph is taken out of prison. He's put before Pharaoh, said, hey, interpret this for me. Like, what's going on? And so he interprets it as saying that, that there were going to be seven years of prosperity for the kingdom, for the world, followed by seven years of famine. But the inflection point happens when Joseph takes things a little bit further. You probably remember this, that he suggests a game plan for all of it the planning, the purpose, and the suggestion of someone being in charge of it. And lo and behold, Pharaoh, in that moment, chooses Joseph to step into that position, a position that was just one rank lower than him. He sees the opportunity, and he seizes the opportunity. And then the story goes on. Things happen just as Pharaoh dreamt, just as Joseph had interpreted, that there's a lower story of famine that's introduced. Seven years of prosperity, followed by a lower story, seven years of famine. And so we pick up now in Genesis chapter 41, verses 56 through 57. We'll put that up on the screen. It's also found in your notes if you wanted to follow along or uh, see where we're headed with that. So the story tells us when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. So the lower story, what's going on is there's famine. There's not a lot of food. There's not really any food. There's a food famine. But then when we enter into chapter 42, there's a second type of lower story famine going on, a second event, and that's a family famine. And I'm not talking about in this case, well, in this case, yeah, there's definitely not, thing, not enough to eat together, but there's also a relationship famine. Uh, it's almost like the relationships have decayed over time. So we pick up in, verse, in chapter 42, verses 1 to 2. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep just looking at one another? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there. Come on, guys, and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So let's just pause there because this is really significant. This is really significant because Jacob is the father, the father of the 12 boys. 
Um, it's significant because Jacob, we haven't seen since chapter 37. All the way back weeks ago, the beginning of this sermon series, when he sends Joseph off, you might remember that part, he sends Joseph off to his brothers, and that leads into the whole being thrown into the well and then sold into slavery. And that's, that was the last time that we saw Jacob. And the brothers had returned to him and basically said that, oh, Joseph got killed by a wild animal, the end, and he was really, really upset. The brothers said that Joseph was dead, but now there's a famine. Now there's a, a famine. The lower story tells us that that's what's going on here. And Jacob, his boys, just as I think any good parent would, and first he sees them, they're kind of like doing this, I imagine. They're like doing the navel-gazing thing, like kind of looking around, like who's going to do anything, right? Who's going to change the situation? And I think Jacob, if he could have said in uh, our words today, said like, guys, don't you see there ain't no Cheerios? We don't ain't got Cheerios, right? Cupboards are bare here. You know who has Cheerios? Not giant, but down to Egypt. You got to go to Egypt. And I wonder... You know, these kids, these guys are not toddlers, by the way. These are adult men, adult men. Do you think that they were hungry? Don't you think that they were hungry? Of course they are. They're boys. Anybody that has ever brought up boys, you know that they eat and eat and eat and eat. But go to Egypt, right? They're smart enough. They knew that. This is not groundbreaking news that Jacob is bringing to them. So imagine they're also remembering something else. They remember who they sold to Egypt. They remember who they sold to Egypt. I think it's kind of like for us, have you ever avoided some place because you thought of who you might run into? Yeah, you know they shop there. You know that your ex visits, visits that restaurant or that area, you know, or you see that person, you see their car, right? and you're maybe you're in one aisle, you're going down Walmart, and you see that person afar, what do you do? You're like, cart right, right? You're going down the other direction. You, you've done that, like I've done that, right? Kind of avoiding the situation. I think they were smart. I think they knew. They thought, yeah, you know, who else is down in Egypt if we go? Maybe that's why they haven't gone yet, and it takes their father to come to them. Well, the story continues, verse 3. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. So imagine everybody and your grandmother is headed to Egypt. It's this whole wide panic that's going on. You know what that reminds me of when I was reading this the first time? This. You remember this? Two years ago. Yeah, you're like, where did it go, guys? How much are you using, right? You're going to have plumbing problems soon. Come on now. But everybody and your grandmother is headed to Egypt because there's nothing anywhere else. Like, that's what we did, right? We, you know, we had the secrets. I had the secrets. Like, do you know that Aldi is getting it at 8 a.m. tomorrow? I got text messages from friends giving the heads up. They talked to the supervisor, and they said the truck comes then. We had lines of people. Well, it's like the same thing that was, that's, that was happening then. You had everybody going to Egypt. But it's interesting the story tells us that Jacob, though, he didn't send one of the brothers, one of the brothers named Benjamin. Benjamin, who kind of 
sort of replace Joseph. Remember, Jacob thinks maybe at this time that Joseph is dead because that's what his brothers had said. But Benjamin has become the kind of next favored child. And Jacob remembers what happened the last time he sent a son with these guys. So he holds him back. And it's interesting, one of the, the scholars that I was reading about this part in this story, um, the story, the scholar said and assumed and believed that Jacob knew what was going on here. Jacob knew that something had happened that the brothers had been involved in with Joseph. He may see what's going on here. And that scholar said, under a father's eye, their crimes may be covered, but not their character. Right, parents? You know, you know what's going on even before they tell you, even before they come to you and say anything. And that's kind of what's happening here, is that Benjamin's held back, the others are sent. Jacob is keeping a wary eye on the situation. The story continues. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land. Remember, he rose to power, seven years of prosperity, now the famine. The person who sold grain to all its people. When Joseph's, Joseph's brothers arrived... They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. What do you think, right? Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. Remember, all the pieces coming together connect the dots, the puzzle, the bowing, them coming to him, him being in this position. If you're like Joseph, Joseph keeps in mind that the top story, the upper story is unfolding. Remember, he's living there. He's seeing the fulfillment, the fulfillment that is going on, the fulfillment of dreams, the fulfillment of dreams. That Joseph, at this time, he's put in charge of all this stuff, and he's especially in charge of all the food and the food situation. And he's a smart guy, so he not only stockpiled things, but he opened Costco's. And he was the guy out front checking the cards. Not literally, figuratively, but he's there. He's there. Imagine, he too remembers who might be coming down this way while there's a famine and while they're prepared in Egypt, but others are not. The scripture says they don't recognize him. The brothers don't recognize him. Imagine, it's been over 20 years at this point. And Joseph, for all intents and purposes, he's Egyptian. He's Egyptian. He's been living there that long. He, of course, talks like an Egyptian, he walks like an Egyptian. He, you know, just everything about him is Egyptian. You know, would you recognize the guy? I wouldn't. But Joseph, Joseph, on the other hand, he knew what to look for. He knew what to look for. He saw these brothers because he was there waiting at Costco for the cards, expecting at some point there would be a, an arrival here. It's just like us, right? If you've been to a class reunion... You know, you maybe haven't seen people in like 20, whatever, 30 years plus. But if the, you're looking out for them, you could probably recognize them. You know, some cases probably not, but mo some, most cases you can. You can recognize their demeanor, how they act, like their kind of posture, even if their hair color has changed or their body shape has changed. And I think that was the case for Joseph. He knew what to look for. And so 
Why is he doing this, though? You imagine, is, is he out to get vengeance on his brothers for what they did? Is he looking at them to say, ah, I'm going to get them finally, I'm going to get them back? No, I think because he's living in the top story, remember. He's living in his top story of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because that's where God resides, in that top story that's going on. A sense of forgiveness. But when he meets his brothers, of course he's a human being as well. And the scripture tells us that he begins to speak harshly to them. He speaks harshly. He's checking the cards. They come up. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He accuses them of being spies coming. And basically, and they're like, no, you know, we're not that. Like, come on now. We're just here to buy food. And they get into this whole thing. And I think Joseph starts with that harshness, first of all, because he's human. But second of all, doesn't trauma do that? Doesn't trauma cause that? It comes out, even when you're planning to offer forgiveness, you can't help but, but express those emotions, some that have been bottled up for many years, in his case, years and years and years. Joseph is not a saint and he's not a villain in this story. He's like you and me. He had to battle those, th- those thoughts, that trauma. You know, if I asked you to think of a, a trauma, something that's happened in your life, if I asked you to retell that story, you would probably remember every single thing about it, right? You'd remember all the details. You remember every, what you were wearing, what time it was, who was there, what the place looked like, whatever happened. And, and so those things impact us. They impact us in a long and a real way. But then Joseph approaches the situation and sees what they're doing. And he's reminded, even in the midst of that emotion, he's reminded of the top story going on because when they bow to him, something clicks in his brain and says, God's dreams are at work here. But of course, Joseph was the governor. And he, as the governor, had the power to destroy them or to restore them. But what does he do? Neither. He does neither. What he does is he acts out, he puts in a situation to see if something has happened in the meantime, if God had done something in his brother's. See, friends, forgiveness, sometimes we get it confused. We misunderstand what forgiveness is supposed to be. What forgiveness is not is it doesn't mean that we have to be buddies. It doesn't mean that, that we become just the way that we were before or things are restored to exactly how they were before. Forgiveness does not mean that you trust Forgiveness is about something that happened in the past, but trust is about something that happened in the future. Forgiveness is not excusing sin. It's not excusing sin. It's not denying the hurt and the emotional turmoil that you've been through. It doesn't mean putting aside anger or even putting aside a need for justice. It's not forgetting. Forgiving is not forgetting by any means. It's, it's also setting up boundaries, though, that might help provide for that to be healthy. It's, it's different than reconciliation. Reconciliation is something that is different than forgiveness because reconciliation involves two parties, and it may or may not come after forgiveness happens. 
And that's, that, that's the difference. And I think um, author Corey Ten Boom, who had been through the Holocaust, she herself wrote The Hiding Place. Maybe you've read that before. But she says it like this, even more powerfully. She says, forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temper, temperature of the heart. It's an act of the will. It can function regardless of whether you're hot or cold or angry or boiling inside. And so Joseph, what does he do? He tests them first. He tests them. He seems driven by vengeance, but I think even more so he's driven, though, by forgiving, by a spirit of forgiveness, and he wants to see where they are. And he has questions. He, remember, he doesn't know what happened when they went back to dad and what happened in the years after that. It, they want, he wants to know, what did you tell dad? You know, why didn't anybody come and look for me? Well, verse 13 tells us, as Joseph is asking these questions, but they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Remember, they don't know that they're talking to Joseph at this point, but Joseph himself gets answers. His dad is alive, the youngest isn't there, and you guys lied. You lied. A big, fat lie. And now Joseph knows the truth. So how do you deal with that, right? How do you deal with that? Well, Joseph has a little bit of a plan, and he tells them, I want you guys to go back. Well, first we're going to put you in prison three days. I think he did that just to give him a little taste, right? He spent years and years just, y'all need to just feel this for a little bit. But he puts them in time out for three days, and then he sends them back. It's kind of a plot twist. He sends them back to Jacob and says, I want you to bring back that youngest one that you left behind. We want you to bring him back. But just to make sure you do, one of y'all is going to stay here. He's going to stay here in prison. And Simeon was chosen for that duty. And of course, the brothers, what are they thinking at this point? Holy, ah, right? <laughs> this is a bad situation all around. Dad's not going to want to part with Benjamin. Simeon, oh my gosh, like he's He's going to be left here. He's going to die. What are we going to do? It's a bad place. And so as they're on their way, verse 21 picks up and tells us, they said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, one of the brothers, replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand him. Remember, he talked like an Egyptian since he was using an interpreter. They regret it. They share that they regret what they had done to Joseph 20 plus years earlier. And Joseph hears them. And Joseph, the story goes, scripture tells us he breaks down. He has to excuse himself. Grown man crying, crying because his heart is broken. He turns away, and Simeon is taken. He's cuffed, and he's stuffed in prison, and Joseph gives them provision by putting money back in their sacks that they would have spent. He gives them grain. You might ask, is he being generous, or is he setting them up? I think the answer to that is yes. He's kind of doing both. But the brothers, they're so focused on the lower story that's going on that at this point, they miss that. They miss the upper story. They miss an opportunity and a story of grace. They miss an opportunity 
of repentance, I mean turning around. But Joseph all the while is living in the upper story. He had seen and heard what, what had happened. But I think over those 20 plus years, God had done something in him. God had worked in him over those years and changed him inside instead of wanting to get vengeance and wanting to get back and give them what they deserved. He was changed and saw a need here. See, friends, if, if life is all about circumstances, there's a lot of junk that's going to go on in this life. But an upper story living there shows that God is here. That's where forgiveness resides. There's no place for it to reside in the lower story if that's where you're living. And I think many of us have a list, you know, don't we? I know, I do, I confess that. A personal naughty list. The people that have wronged me and, and the people over time that if I look back and I see that, that the ways that they have done wrong to me in my life. And, and then we see also those who have done the unforgivable sin. You know what that is? Being a Steelers or Penguins fan. Yeah, amen to that, right? That's just kidding. Y'all are okay. Um, but, but seriously, we all have a list. You know, if I asked you, you could probably name some people that, hey, th you know, this person did, did, like, cheated on me. This person went behind me, stabbed me in the back. This friend is not, was not a friend. But what if that list is poisoning you? What if that list is poisoning you? See, Joseph is conflicted, but he forgives. And what does he do? Get this. He physically he sets them free. And I think at the same time that he sets them free to go back, he sets himself free. See, forgiveness, in the Greek language, it literally means to let go. It's to let go. Like I said, it doesn't mean denying what's been done. It doesn't mean putting aside, oh, I'm not angry anymore, all, all that kind of stuff. But it means letting go. And if you've ever gone to a 12-step meeting, I, first of all, I encourage everybody to attend at some point a 12-step meeting or a recovery meeting. We're all in recovery. Can I get an amen to that? We all have hurts, hang-ups, addictions. We have all that crap that goes on. And in a 12-step meeting, step eight out of 12 is the key of forgiveness, is to forgive. It's a key. It's important, but you can't move past that. It's one of the hardest parts. You can't move past that until you forgive. And of course, you're thinking all the while, they don't deserve it. He hurt me. They're not sorry, right? But it's really, forgiveness is not about them. Forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is for you, not them. Like I said, reconciliation, that might happen later or it might not. But forgiveness is about you. And oftentimes I think in life, the best things are on the other side of passing through difficult things. Joseph lets his brother go. He lets his brothers go. And I think letting go, letting go in this story is a precursor to the gospel precursor to the good news. Because we see, we fast forward thousands of years, we see Jesus invites us to do what to one another? Forgive one another, love one another as you have been forgiven. And maybe you're like, at this point, that list, I've tried, but I just can't do it. I've tried. It's like never in my wildest dreams would I ever be able to forgive that person. And sometimes church really gets it wrong. We mess it up. Pastors like me, we mess it up. And we say, you should forgive somebody. You just got to work harder on that. You got to try harder. I think that's missing the point. That's not the gospel by any means. 
When you finally say, when you say, I really don't want to, I don't have the capacity to, Lord, that's when you finally get it. The work of the gospel is what fuels forgiveness, that we can't do it in our own power. We recognize that. We need God to help us to do it. Forgiveness requires us to start with ourselves and requires us to make the first move. We have to forgive ourselves before we forgive anybody else, but it also requires us to make the first move, to make that choice. Like I said, Corey Ten Boom, it's a, it's a willful decision here. The issue is not working harder to forgive, but it's rather the need for us to receive God's love more and more and then to offer forgiveness from what we have experienced. Friends, to sum it all up, forgiveness is choosing to live in the upper story. Like I said, your own power, the things that are going on, you can't do it by yourself if you live in a lower story. But when you live in an upper story, it changes your perspective and it changes your position in what you see. And you all may remember a number of years ago, 2006, there was a shooting in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and six Amish girls lost their lives there. And there's been books and movies that were, have been shown and written about this, about the forgiveness that the Amish people offered to that man and to his family. And people would ask, how is that possible? Well, one of the authors was talking about how the Amish practice forgiveness because it's not just a one-and-done deal, but they practice it over and over with their families. And they'd been preparing for that tragic moment to forgive this huge injustice. They've been preparing their whole lives. See, Joseph's decision wasn't driven by the brothers and how they acted. It was driven by God. He was living in the upper story. I think we can say, in the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy, but in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. Paul says it like this in Colossians. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord did what? Forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Forgiveness is a part of the dream. It's a part of God's dream. And God, as we sung about and shared today, God made the first move towards you. Will you take that step towards him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.